I'm Dave Monaco, the Alan Meyer Family Head of School at Parish Episcopal School. Welcome to the From My Angle podcast. As we begin the month of October, we stand just a month away from the 2020 election. In this time of challenge for our country, reeling from the economic and health impacts of the pandemic and shaken by the regular images of social unrest in our cities, the tenor and repercussions of the election are top of mind. Difference of opinion should be expected in a healthy democracy, but the toxic exchanges between those of varying viewpoints we witness and hear in today's society are characterized by elevated emotions, raised voices, and biting social media posts. In our initial episodes of the podcast this month, we explored listening as a prerequisite for building a healthy community, one that has a chance to stay together. In our recent episode with Carrie Schuster and Kelly Weber from Sacred Heart Academy Bryn Mawr, we heard firsthand how much young people want to talk about the challenging issues of the day, but how vital it is to equip them with the skills they lack yet need in order to have civil conversations with one another, the kind of conversations they see modeled for them too infrequently in our culture these days. One wonders, if our young people of today do not command these important skills, how will our communities in this country, big and small alike, stay together? So, this month, in the throes of another tense election season, we want to dig more deeply into the importance of civility in healthy communities. Disagreement, intemperance, and incivility can fracture friendships and dismantle groups. What does it take, then, to muster the resolve and courage to have a difficult conversation? What strategies can guide us when we want to express a strong opinion or disagree with one we have heard, but fear the reprisals or consequences that might follow? And how do we best manage our emotions when in the midst of such conversations so that the engagement does not do irreparable harm to a relationship? For naughty questions like these, I am most grateful to have a community leader I have long admired to help us consider some possible answers. An added bonus is that Michelle Kinder is a new parish parent. Many of you may know Michelle from her 20 years working at the Momentous Institute, the final six of those years serving as the Institute's executive director. The daughter of missionaries, Michelle was raised in Guatemala, an experience that had afforded her an immense appreciation for the value of learning from others, the importance of diversity, and the clarity that there are many different ways to approach virtually everything. Michelle is a licensed professional counselor, and she applied those skills as she guided Momentous Institute, a nearly 100-year-old nonprofit here in Dallas focused on building and repairing social-emotional health. Since leaving Momentous, Michelle has shifted her efforts to speaking, writing, and coaching. She co-authored Whole, What Teachers Need to Help Students Thrive, and has articles featured in more than a dozen publications, including Time, The Washington Post, and our own Dallas Morning News. This rich conversation will afford us much upon which to reflect. I hope you enjoy it. Well, good morning, Michelle Kinder. Welcome to the From My Angle podcast. Good morning. I'm so happy to be here. We're thrilled to have you. Uh, New parish parent, as we'll talk a little bit about, and also community leader uh, of great admiration for me. So I'm thrilled you're taking the time to spend spend it with me today in our Zoom space, now our comfortable home for, for all of us. And you know, I've been talking in this month of October. Um, here we are just a month away from the election. I've been talking this month of October as we get going, um, kind of accelerating my fall conversations around uh, how, how we talk to one another. 
as a mechanism for coming together. And uh, it seems we are seeing challenges amidst us as people uh, yell and scream and raise voice and elevate emotion and send biting social media posts. And so, you know, uh, coming off a conversation with a couple educators uh, in my last episode, Carrie Schuster and Kelly Weber, who are doing great work getting young people to have difficult conversations that they desire to have. Uh, I really wanted to go to somebody who's um, spent a lot of time uh, in this work and is training and, and uh, teaching not just students, but adults um, about how to have a difficult conversation, like what emotions go into it and how do we fight through those emotions to actually sit down and have that conversation and how do we handle it once we find ourselves there. So thanks because you're bringing some great expertise here um, to us. So we're glad to have you. Oh, I'm really glad to be here, and I consider myself like a 24-7 student of this topic. Um, I, I just feel like even those of us who have studied it and care a lot about it, it's the hit rate is not anywhere close to 100%. Um, and to me, it's helpful to just kind of acknowledge that, too, and um, hold that with some grace that... Uh, we're all kind of in the grapple zone when it comes to uh, having challenging conversations about stuff we care a lot about. Yeah, I have a letter coming out to our families next Monday in which I surmise that I wonder if social media has just actually made us worse at it mm. so that we all have to continue to get better at it, but we're actually just trying to get back to level. It's just a hypothesis. I don't know if people 20 years ago were better at difficult conversations before social media gave them a shield to hide behind. But uh, I wonder if um, we've all been a little bit crippled by it. And so, yeah, if we're interested in getting uncomfortable and trying to evolve our own thinking as the world changes around us um, by engaging in these difficult conversations, we're finding ourselves all a bit ill-equipped to do it. It's so true. Like we, it's that weird tension of social media kind of creating whole new norms and um, the kind of behavior that shows up when you feel anonymous. And, uh, and the other pull being it's democratizing what voices are setting the narrative, which is really, really positive. So uh, yeah, well, I think we're just, we're learning so much about how to be human beings that move our culture and climate forward, even though so much of how we shape our thinking and react to our circumstances is really, really different than what our ancestors navigated. Right, and different from one another because we each respond to them in, in, unique, in unique ways based on our, in our background, which is really a place that I wanted to start with that, that you, you are well known in our community from your time as the executive director of the Momentus Institute, which we'll, which we'll get into. So you have uh, broad, um, I think, name and face awareness in the community and, and credibility in that regard. But uh, though you've spoken publicly about your, your past as a, where you were raised and sort of the values that formed you, I wanted to get into that some just as leader to leader. I'm curious about how early experiences form operational values and mindsets for leaders in their present life. And so as an expert in emotional health, I was curious as the daughter of a missionary, a missionary parents, two missionary parents, and you were raised in Guatemala, how that shaped you as one who was so attuned to emotional intelligence and emotional health in human relationship. Yeah, I've actually thought a lot about that. Um, just, just out of curiosity, um, 
for my own kind of understanding self. And I think there's a few things. Like one thing that I definitely get garnered from that experience is that we belong to the community. That's how my parents lived their life. And, um, and I think I just understood that if my efforts weren't uh, contributing and creating change for people, not just myself um, or people in my little bubble, then, uh, then that maybe missed the mark. So that was one. And then I think the other thing that was pretty formative is just growing up in with a foot in two cultures or more. Um, and just from an infant, there was not one right way to do anything. So I think it created a comfort with diversity and even a, an appreciation and a celebration for different ways to do things, different ways to see things. Um, that was big. And then the third thing that comes to mind is, so I was born in Guatemala. I grew up in Guatemala. That was home to me, but I didn't look like a Guatemalan. Um, and when I came to the States to visit, I felt out of place, but I looked like I belonged. And when I was in Guatemala, I felt like I was in place, but I looked like I didn't belong. And so that also created a lot of reflection in me of like, well, what, what are the things I'm imposing on everyone I encounter all day long that could or couldn't be true? Um, and, and what are my snap judgments about other people based on, you know, random appearances or whatever? So I, I, think think left, I think you left Guatemala at around five or, or six years old. No, I was actually there uh, full time, pretty much full time till high school. Oh, and wow. And great. Okay. Boarding school. Um, but my family was still in Guatemala. So we would come and visit. Okay. Um, but it was home my whole upbringing. So I was super curious. Do you have that first memory of being other in Guatemala? Do you have a time when you were super young? Is there one that resonates with you where you remember looking around and thinking, you know, either the language I use or the tone, the uh, tone of my skin color or what have you, is there one that you, that is still really so vivid to that regard? Yeah. You know, uh, there, there were terms of endearment extended to me as a young child related to my skin color. And so, uh, from, from families that were Guatemalan, um, in terms of heritage. And so I, I, early on kind of had some grounding in that. I can't remember a really specific memory, but I can remember that my parents said from teeny tiny, we were tracking enough to know who to speak Spanish to and who to speak English to without any cueing from the adults around us, which I think is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Really powerful statements that you mentioned about, you know, living it, being other in two worlds. And we know in the private school world, just the world that I reside in have for my professional life that the students of color that come to us are perpetually um, managing that reality, right? So the communities where they church or where they live and then where they come to our community, which though diverse is still 70% uh, white skinned people, you know, they 
um, will struggle at times, in some cases at all times, to um, feel at home in either place because then they return to home community, which they've left to come to our community. Um, they've, they're seen to have changed or absorbed some different values or not so much to fit anymore, or they don't feel they fit anymore entirely. Or of course, when they come to our community, there are all the dimensions of identity that they don't necessarily see as reflective around them as they do in their home communities. And so that's really what resonated with me when I heard you um, sharing your, your, your thoughts on that. And I, I obviously elevated your sensitivities to, to difference and uh, acute, this acuteness of what it means and feels like to belong, it sounds like. Yeah, I think that's totally right, Dave. So professionally, you found your way to the Momentous Institute and spent uh, a, a long stretch of time there doing very productive work. And again, I think most of our community is generally familiar with it, but I felt it's worth um, stepping one step back before we move forward, just to, to give in broad strokes uh, what the work in the Momentous Institute has done for decades and decades here in Dallas. And so tell us a little bit about how you plugged in there to the emotional well-being of the community more broadly defined uh, through the work that you led at Momentous Institute. Yeah, yeah. I, um, I was with Momentous Institute for 20 years and started there as a therapist and school counselor and worked with families um, in therapy for lots of years, then led the therapy team and then spent my last six years there as the executive director. And their focus is on social emotional health. And they play it out through mental health services, a lab school that prioritizes social emotional health on par with academics and then research and training. Um, so it's, it's an extraordinary place. Um, the most exquisite uh, group of people I've ever even imagined getting to work with um, and, and their work continues. It's a hundred year old organization and their work continues. Um, so it's it's an important chapter for me. Yeah, and an, an incredibly important organization in the in the community. And another point of intersection for us in the past has been my chair. I chair the board at United to Learn, an organization that works, you know, now with uh, over forty five um, Dallas uh, elementary um, Dallas Independent School elementary schools. And uh, the Momentous Institute has been an incredibly huge partner in providing um, social emotional training to educators to then take. Uh, acts of mindfulness and uh, lesson plans around social emotional intelligence um, to the earliest and youngest learners, uh, you know, 25,000 uh, worth of them here in the uh, in, in Dallas ISD. So um, speaking from my awareness of how you've impacted the work of United to Learn through the Institute and your own um, guidance and partnership with us, it's certainly appreciated and uh, has had real, real legs uh, in, in the community, uh, in the community here. Now you're speaking and training groups uh, to build resilient, uh, you know, healthy communities, the type that can come together and stay together, hitting on my theme. You've written a book for teachers on how to help students thrive. So when you look at our communities, young and old, you know, what is it that you see that might be causing this fracturing that's, that seems to permeate um, the context of, of our broader national community and some of our local communities as well? Yeah. Um... You know, it's so complex, um, but there's a few threads that I'll pull on. Um, one is uh, I'm an, an eternal optimist, and there's a woman named, I think she pronounces her last name Carr. It's K-A-U-R, Valerie. And um, 
she says, um, what if this isn't the darkness of the tomb, but the darkness of the womb? And, and that's my frame on it too, except for when it's not, because I go in and out of, you know, really dark interpretations of everything that's going on, like everyone. But, but I prefer to tilt in the direction of that view, that, that what's actually happening here is that something is being born, um, not that something is dying. Um, I know for a lot of people, there's a sense of, I wish we could go back it was simpler, better, but the truth is it was simpler and better for a group of people. Mm-hmm. And it was horrible for a lot of other people. Mm-hmm. And so whatever we're heading toward, my hope and prayer is, is uh, something that creates space for um, equity and justice and liberation that is felt across groups, um, not just held by a small group of folks. So that fracturing can, in a sense, then be um, those that are holding on to that sense of the old, right? And so what's causing it is either anxiety, insecurity, anger, um, uh, a a sense of distrust, right? There's lots of those emotional elements that can cause the fracturing because if this is about the womb, we're not sure what's being birthed here. Right. I'm really not sure where this is going and that's unsettling in a way that can create a a split or a fracture. Totally. And I think it's amplified a million times by the fact that we don't have the same starting point anymore. Mm. Um, Maybe we never totally did, but certainly it was different when everybody watched the same six o'clock news and then people reacted differently based on their beliefs and history and identities Uh, But now you can live your whole life and frame a story of what's happening based on content that is totally different than the content your neighbor is receiving to decide what they think is going on. And and that's really, really tricky because if if I'm sitting across from someone who sees the world completely different than I do, and my assumption is that we're hearing all the same stuff and coming to these wildly different conclusions, it's much easier for me to go to a dark judgmental place. But if I can understand that they're actually coming up with their conclusions based on really different data, then I can come at it from a much, much greater generosity of spirit mm-hmm. and genuine curiosity um, and, and see kind of how we can complicate each other's thinking, um, instead of like arm wrestle each other, uh, around it. Yeah. So it's, where do we start? And then you get to that point of arm wrestling. I think there's also screaming about what's going to be birthed out of the womb. Right. And so, you know, what we want to do is we, we feel like if we yell louder at those that are not ready to move, and this is that call out culture. So if I yell louder at you at social media, because you should be more indignant about police brutality, or you should be marching in the streets or what have you, if I call you out that way, you know, the more I call you out and the louder it is, the faster you'll move, which is not going to happen. Similarly, the more that I tell you that um, those views that you possess are unfair to the police, or don't take into account, you know, the fact that my life as a 
person of of, uh, uh, of white skin has also been hard and difficult and you're not acknowledging that, you know, so I want to screen you back to recognition of, you know, the outcome that I hope for and, and, and which is a little bit more stability. Like all this is, is just screaming at each other about what the new future needs to look like, right? And, and um, that's, that seems to be the big gap we face is really nobody wants to get into that complexity you reference to really start talking about how complicated and challenging um, these conversations are and unique to every individual's identity and um, set of lived experiences. And there's a neurobiological component to this as well. So like when we have those strong emotions emerge, we get all into our amygdala, right? Which is that fight, flight, or freeze zone, which literally shuts down the capacity of our prefrontal cortex to come online. And so we're walking around making decisions, having conversations from this heated primitive space that was trained to note the danger like a saber-toothed tiger and react in accordance to the fact that that danger could kill you. Well, our, our systems don't differentiate. Like it's still reacting. Like an email or a tweet can bring up the exact same neurobiological response that a saber-toothed tiger once did. And then our, our way of engaging with it has that same intensity. So we have to learn to note when we're in that state and not use that moment to make a decision, a move, further communication. Because in that moment, the prefrontal cortex is what helps us know, if I do this, this might happen. So if that part of your brain is shut down, you, you're not thinking at all about consequences. You're just wanting to relieve the anxiety that is ramping up because your amygdala is hijacking. And we really, we really want to get into this idea of what makes the difficult conversations difficult. And so there's the biochemistry of a difficult conversation, which um, you're talking about. Um, you're talking about it almost as it's happening, right? So I'm... Um, I've been triggered. Someone has said something. We've, we've sort of entered into a difficult space for us and our emotion has already been unleashed because my amygdala has been inflamed by an image I've seen or a word that's been spoken. But I wonder backing up, you know, wh what is it that even causes the hesitation to start the difficult conversation to enter the con difficult conversation? Is there a similar biochemical um, impediment to that? Yeah, I mean, it's terrifying to be vulnerable. <laughs> you know, we don't have a lot of conditioning in our culture to be vulnerable. And so we, rather than kind of normalizing this creative tension and this, um, you know, uh, kind of showing of your, of your uh, more vulnerable spots and aspects, we, we kind of armor up, armor up, armor up, armor up until that becomes unsustainable. And then, and then the reaction, rather than it being kind of um, normalized, that we're having uh, conversations where there's tension, we have a huge one-time, it's kind of like the sex talk with your kids it's not a one-time thing. And when you make it a one-time thing, it's debilitating. <laughs> it's the same thing with challenging uh, 
differences of opinion, if you are never talking about it and then all of a sudden you decide you're going to talk about it, it's overwhelming. Yeah. Yeah. We, I've learned this lesson as an educator for sure in that we have got to do a better job at Parish recognizing that let's just take an upper school, for example, where you would get into more sophisticated conversations around the challenging issues of the day. Those 440 students in our upper school, to your previous point, are at all different spots in the spectrum of uh, readiness, uh, comfort, um, skill, to have the types of conversations that we're suggesting. Yet, to our, to our fault, many of our presentations have been a Michelle Kinder up in front of all 440 of those kids talking about the challenging issue of the day, right? Which when you talk about this idea of vulnerability and the tur and turtle shelling, like armoring up and saying, I'm not going to listen or hearing only partially what's been said and only the part that has been heard is that which most offends or insults or, or triggers you. This has been, I think, my greatest epiphany. And we are trying really hard to think about smaller group um, uh, environments, well-facilitated, that um, allow um, a segmenting of individuals by their readiness for the conversation right? <laughs> instead of mixing and matching. So folks want to go deep and go, go into the weeds, you know, and, and really get ready to muck around uh, can do that, but they're not taking with them individuals who are, who are just ready to dip their toe into those, into those murky weeds. So that's one lesson that I've, that I've learned that I think resonates with the points that you're making around armoring up and yeah. fear, fear of vulnerability. I, I love that. And I, I, one of the things I've been grappling with as I've been learning and reading more this year is um, how we balance the need for being thoughtful and um, creating safety while also making sure that we're not using that as an exit ramp from the work. Uh, because that, that is one of the things that has been used as an exit ramp from doing the work is, well, people don't feel safe where it's too complex or people are at different stages. And it's like, how do we attend to that? Because if you don't attend to it, it's a powder keg. So kudos to y'all for knowing that and attending to it. But then uh, keep the pressure on ourselves to still push forward um, beyond any sense of safety. Yeah. I mean, for the last 10 years, at least in the circles that um, were prioritizing the experience of, I'll just say me, like circles that prioritized my feeling of safety as a white woman to the importance of truth and justice and widening of perspectives and balancing out of power, like, all of those things um, can get completely derailed if we wait for total safety for people who hold the power. That's actually never going to happen. Yeah. So we've got to walk um, our community into that space. Our mission statement says the world is complex and global. So we are actually misaligned with that part of our mission statement and also the mission statement that talks about an inclusive, um, being an inclusive fiscal community if we, if we don't do it. So this element of vulnerability heading into the conversations, then this, you know, amazingly, like essentially ancestral uh, element of our brain poking its head up and, and uh, bringing us a, a, essentially a shutdown when we get into these emotional conversations or two elements that make difficult conversations so hard. 
I would suggest maybe one more for you to respond to, which is this um, uh, element as one who has to have a lot of difficult conversations of anticipatory anxiety, right? So we know a difficult conversation is coming up and we begin, we've all been there. We begin to uh, essentially roll it through our head and envision it happening and play out the words and play out the exchanges. And I have found, I think, you know, as I've gotten older, that um, oftentimes the conversations go a lot more smoothly and um, uh, fluidly than you feared they would not, you know? So all that anticipatory anxiety is essentially um, maybe cause you to go off one of those off ramps you spoke about and just go hide from it, avoid it, um, or to put a lot more emotional stress and energy into it than you maybe needed to. You just needed to sit down and have the conversation, right? Yeah, and our nervous systems don't distinguish between something actually happening and us playing it through in our brains. So you might as if you're going to go through that anticipatory anxiety and keep yourself in that loop, then you will give yourself the exact same biological torture as actually going through that experience. So um, it's 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 critical for people to sort of um, track on when they're looping like that. Um, one of my favorite tools comes from David Emerald. He wrote The Power of Ted and he has this tool that he calls FISB, which stands for what you focus on, that's the F, mm -hmm. drives your internal state, mm -hmm. which then drives your behavior. Mm -hmm. And so he says, if you focus on the problem, which we are all tending to do, right? Rick Hansen talks about our brains are uh, Velcro for the negative and Teflon for the positive. So we tend to focus on the problem and what that does to our internal state, to your point, Dave, is it creates an internal state of anxiety, which then our behavior is uh, one of reactivity. So we, we focus on the problem, we get very anxious, and then we react. And that cycle repeats itself, repeats itself. And very often the reactions are not even designed to solve the problem. They're just designed to lower our anxiety. Yeah. So in, in David Emerald's model, he encourages us to note when we're in that cycle and ask ourselves the question, what do you really want? And that question bridges you over to focusing on your preferred outcome or your vision. It's like, what do you want from this conversation with this person? I, I want a, a more collegial relationship that we can work together well or um, co-parent or whatever it is. And then that drives the internal state of passion. When we focus on vision, preferred outcome, Instead of feeling anxious, we feel passionate. Mm -hmm. And then what that does in terms of behavior is it illuminates next steps. So, I mean, you, we could practice right now. Like we could think of something that we've been fixated on that's a problem, ask ourselves what we really want. You literally, you instantly feel a shift when you're like, oh, well, you know, what I really want is stop having the same conversation every other day with a person or whatever and then passion and then uh then we know what to do next yeah it's interesting even to offer that framework to the person that you're about to sit down and have the conversation with say you know um 
assuming it's not a one-way invitation to it, but both have recognized the need to have the conversation is just before we start. So here's what I really seek to get out of this conversation. What is it, Michelle, that you seek to get out of it? You know, And um, that that's an interesting um, strategy that you offer there, a really powerful one about how to you know take that internal state and understand that it's going to drive it's going to drive our behavior because those those conversations almost in, uh, immediately create a sense of defensiveness, right? That's the, one of the reactions to which you refer. I think is this notion that even once the conversation starts, you know, I know this is going to be difficult. I know you're going to give me some feedback that I um, maybe find challenging or even disagree with, and so my reaction is instead of listening to it with both ears, um, to yeah. I have my response ready, you know, my left, right hook to, uh, to, to counter punch you. you know? and, and they actually, if that's the kind of feeling in the room, they actually cannot hear you with the prefrontal cortex. Yep. They're not hearing you. Yep. Um, and then kind of layering onto all of that is that ladder of inference work, right? So you know, what, what all this observable data, we're only picking up a tiny bit of at any given minute, second. And that data that we do notice is really designed to just confirm what we already believe. And then we float up the ladder in terms of it informing our beliefs and then our actions. Um, and so, you know, if we're flying up the ladder all the time and the other people are flying up their ladder, there's there's some brilliant work out there by this uh, gentleman named Dave Gray on liminal thinking. Right. Um, you, yes, I'm not surprised you, you're, you, you're a fan, but there's Finality, like a yes. five or 12 minute video that I wish was required. I wish they'd run it on the six o'clock news. Like we all need to be thinking about the ladder of inference and liminal thinking right now. And, and, and out of that work comes this really easy strategy of understanding that anything we think is framed based on our experiences and it isn't truth with a capital T. So, so starting a difficult conversation rather than just cold, starting it with um, you know, the story I'm telling myself is. That's really different than you dot, dot, dot. Yeah, Albert Brooks is, is, had written has been writing a series in the Atlantic on uh, life transitions, especially the transitions to take one from a robust uh, life of work into uh, the fifth quarter. You know what comes after that, and that's the most recent reference to liminality or this luminous state. And that he talked about not so much in preparing for a difficult conversation, but preparing for a difficult transition. And you know the story and identity that we carry into that. Um, latter stage of our life and how we have to reconfigure it and we have to sort of live with that discomfort right uh and 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 sort of leverage it um as we think about our new identity um in a post-work um in a post-work identity um and so it's really interesting um, to see reference it more in the notion of how we confront a difficult conversation as opposed to in his instance just a difficult life transition, right? Well, everything you just said makes me think of what the country's going through right now. Like we're in a liminal space as a country and right. it is hard. It's anxiety provoking. And um, the truth about human development, especially adult human development, is people rarely change until it is more uncomfortable not to do so. Mm. And that's, that's what's happening. 
Yeah. We're, we're in a zone create, amplified by this global timeout that we all got put in, uh, where it is becoming more uncomfortable not to change than to change. And so then, it's, then the question becomes, how, how are we going to show up in a way that ushers in that change? So you've given immense um, clarity and, and strategy to adults who are in this space you know, about confronting our vulnerability before a difficult conversation, know that that difficult conversation is necessary for our growth. Um, having a strategy when we start those conversations to understand the outcome that we want out of it, and then to really assess our inner, our sort of inner temperature and, and sort of check the escalation of temperature as we have these conversations um, so that we can really hear and listen and process and grow from them. Great for we, um, you know, wizened, you know, wizened adults who are still trying to get better to, at this part, you know, from the place we started in our conversation, we're all got work to do in this space as adults. But as we kind of close here, you know, we're, we're, um, we're both parents and we both work with um, like young people as well. You've written a book, you know, for kids. So like, what, what do you advise parents who want their kids to do this better? Mm -hmm. How do they, how do they, what do they teach? How do they start? Mm -hmm. What do they do? Mm -hmm. um, okay, so the first and most important piece of this is helping kids learn how to regulate their own nervous system. And, and kids don't experience a regulated nervous system and the capacity to self-regulate until they've experienced mutual regulation. So if you're a hot mess and you're trying to create a kid who can navigate hot messes, <laughs> that's tricky. So, so first thing a parent needs to do is do their own work mm. around regulating their nervous system. And the single most researched, most accessible way to do that is through breath. So whether that's just stopping to recalibrate and kind of get into that state where you're able to function out of your prefrontal cortex or whether that's a formal meditation practice or whatever it is, it's that capacity to note when you're dysregulated and don't think of that as like, oh, this is just my personality. No, you're, you're dysregulated, like your amygdala is in charge and you can learn to regulate your nervous system. So that that's the first is the adults have to regulate their nervous system and teach the kids to do the same. And the strategies that you employ to do that have to be practiced when kids are in a calm state. Um, you can't teach them the strategy when their amygdala is in charge. You have to teach them the strategies when their prefrontal cortex is in charge so they can pull them in when they need them. Um, so that's one. The, the other thing that I think is really important around everything that's happening this year is, is adults managing their own anxiety about kids navigating complexity. Um, I, I understand it. I feel it. But I tilt myself actively in the direction of celebrating the fact that this generation is thinking more deeply about big issues than we ever did at their age. And so rather than like try to control 
um, what they're exposed to. And of course, there's a piece of that depending on the kid's age, you know, dot, dot, dot. But, but there's also an energy of control that isn't helpful to kids. So instead of that energy of control and protection, I try to err on the side of celebrate and calibrate, right? I'm going to celebrate the fact that my kid cares about politics at age 13 and wants to engage around these big issues. And then, I, and then I'm going to teach her how to calibrate those strong emotions and strong opinions so that she can be heard and so that she can hear and, you know, all of that. But me, we're in a way better place than when a whole generation was asleep and assumed that there was never going to be a threat to the things we care about or want to protect. That's really another example of your idea of know what you want in the long term. You know, what just in, in you referenced in a conversation, but what is it that you seek for your, your children when they are competent, independent and autonomous adults? You know, and I would think most of us would agree we want them to not be um, anchored, you know, stuck to our family's values and way of thinking in life if, if they choose to evolve from those. Like we want them to, to be their own individuals. And so I find in our work, you know, that as a school, the more we go into this, um, there are those that feel um, it's not the school's work to do. And that's an understandable point, which I listen to with intent. And I think it's an interesting one, but I think schools have to add this to reading, writing, and arithmetic um, as families do to your point in terms of how they work with their kids. And the second observation that I would make is that I feel there's this, again, vulnerability as we've discussed with parents that somehow anyone else doing this work with their young people is gonna overwrite the values that they've taught in the home. There's just a fear that the values that they've taught um, are going to go away. And it's curious to me because I, I feel like, um, I feel like kids never let go of those completely. They're always present. They may challenge them and, and think, uh, choose to think differently about them ultimately. But I don't know that another entity, individual or organization can fully overwrite um, a young person's experience that they've had growing up in their home, you know? And so that's been an observation that I've found that's interesting too, to your point around letting that, this notion of parents, just letting it, letting go, like let the, let your kids move into the space, let them deal with complexity, you know, see what comes out on the other end in terms of helping them form themselves as, as you know, kind of uh, autonomous thinking, um, you know, young adults and don't worry, you know, about what's going to come of it, like them somehow being scripted or turned into some kind of thinking robot by another person or organization. You have bright kids, you know, you've raised them well to values. Like they're not, they're not going to be, they're not going to be turned into to zombies, you know? And I don't know if you've experienced that in your parents set or the work that you're doing, but I definitely have observed it um, with some interest and amusement and also obviously some frustration as I've had these conversations time and time again with people. Yeah, it's, um, it's that temptation to teach our kids what to think, but really the 18 years is to teach our kids how to think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and to let them, and let them just, just step into that. Um, you can go to Michelle's website, um, michellekinder.com, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Correct. Plenty of resources there. Several um, keynotes that she's given to different organizations locally and beyond. Um, if you want to hear more for thinking on this or see some of the write, uh, writing and resources that are there. So I'd commend the site to um, 
our community because it's excellent, as are you. Mm-hmm. And uh, I appreciate you visiting yeah. with me uh, for a while. I'm so glad to have you in my professional network of, uh, of friends here in, in Dallas. It was a pleasure, Dave. I appreciate that you're doing this and I appreciate the spirit and heart in which you hold the community um, that now holds my daughter. Uh, and we're, we're glad to call you, call you a parish family as well. So thanks for your time. It's been fun to have you in front of my angle. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this edition of the From My Angle podcast. Please share it with friends and colleagues in your network. In my next episode, we will further explore the themes of deep listening, civil discourse, and civic engagement with Jolie Robinson, the outgoing Director of Community Affairs and Youth Engagement with the Dallas Police Department. And yes, Omari and I are doing our best to get our respective schedules coordinated to offer you an episode with him and some of our young people in our upper school. Be patient with us. And until then, thanks for listening to the From Angle Podcast.